Yeah, I was thinking back to when uh, my wife and I had gotten married, and I think most newlyweds have this conversation like, when do you want to have kids? So we had that conversation, and we really didn't put a, a time frame on it. We didn't have it too planned out, but I remember about the fourth year into our marriage, my wife taps me on the shoulder, and she said, hey, let's try for a baby, which was kind of to my dismay because I was like, I have been trying, you know, this whole time. That's what I've been, this is the best you're going to get. And, uh, and I remember we succeeded in that, and it was time for our child to go, you know, to, to the whole process of what it's like to, you know, have the, the, the ultrasounds and the prenatal care and the visits. And, and we're not traditional people, so we wanted to know immediately what that baby's gender was going to be, mainly because we didn't want to have to repaint pink walls to blue. We just wanted it all settled. And so we knew we were getting a boy. And then one week from today, we get to celebrate his 10th birthday, which is pretty cool. And we are so happy about William because we had planned for, for his, his debut into this world. We had the pampers up to the heavens, you know, our closet. His closet was full of pampers. We had all the cribbing. We had uh, all the onesies you could probably want to have for a kid. All the spit-up rags and pacifiers and sippy cups. And we had all of the exorcisers and swings. You know, exorcisers, you know, that's, that's a man's way of parenting their child. You stand here for, for a while, like an hour, and I'll go do something, and I'll come back. Let's see if you're still content and happy. If you are, how about another hour? That's, that's my parenting. That's how it works. And so we had everything in, in, in store for him, and we were ready for him to the best that we could be as new parents. Uh, someone pointed out to me last service, Matt, you lied to the congregation because you were ready for him, but you didn't even have a name for him. I said, that's true. Okay, we weren't that ready for him, but we were pretty much wrapped up about what we thought it took to be good parents. But the twins, on the other hand, were a completely different deal. We couldn't be less ready for them. You see, we had found out we were pregnant, not trying to be pregnant. I was trying. She wasn't. I'm always trying. <laughs> and we find out she's pregnant, and she goes to the doctor, and she, she has the ultrasound. They say, oh, you're pregnant. And so we're a little taken back by that. You know, it's, it's a... It's an unplanned pregnancy. We say, oh, that's great. And they say, we're twins. And we say, okay, we can maybe celebrate that tomorrow once we get over this kick to the stomach. We can figure this out. And then two days later, we are scheduled to go overseas to India. It's about a 36-hour trip with about a plane ride train and, and, uh, and car. And she is sick as can be. And it's a miserable trip for her. And what we didn't know was just the beginnings of that pregnancy and that trip, the miserableness and the sickness, was something that was going to last for the next eight and a half months of that pregnancy. Because when we came back home, we found out that there were complications, serious complications with our twins. Like, we weren't sure if they were going to survive that pregnancy, or if they did, there's going to be some disabilities that we were going to be um, working with. And uh, everything's good, which is a praise God thing. But we were, we were just kicked in the gut. And we would go to uh, Indianapolis every week to see a specialty doctor. And we would come down here and be, see our doctor down here. And it took all kinds of money, all kinds of things that we didn't plan for. And if some of you know my life during that time, you know it was, there was a lot of tragedy in our life. And our life was turned upside down. There was so much trouble. And you compound that with having these unexpected twins and this pregnancy that hasn't gone well. And there was literally like three weeks, right? Three weeks before they were born, we had nothing really in order. Nothing twins nothing and our small group came in and helped save the day on that but i remember thinking we are so excited about twins yet we're totally unprepared for them we were prepared with william but for harrison and benjamin totally unprepared excited but unprepared now i tell you those two stories because those two stories help to summarize 
what's going on in Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, if you would open your Bible up there with me, please. I want to do some background. But God had planned from the very beginning that he was going to send us Jesus. He was like, had it all planned out, perfectly planned out. Everything was in order. But the people, the people that God was sending Jesus to, the people of his day and us, weren't really expecting what they got. They were, they were eager for him, but they, they didn't have everything in order for him. Some of you in here today, you're maybe eager to get your life straightened out. You're eager to walk away from some baggage that you have, some problems that you've had, maybe in a marriage or something in your life that's been really darkening to you. You're trying to walk away from the darkness. And you're not sure if you can walk away from that darkness. Uh, but let me tell you something. God has prepa- prepared a way that you can walk away from the darkness and you can start something of a new life. Let me, t- let me talk about it in this way, how God has planned this arrival of Jesus. All the way back in the book of Genesis, that's the first book of the Bible. Genesis means beginnings. And chapter 3 is what's told of the story of the fall of man. That means when man fell out of the favor of God, we sinned, we messed this world up. God had a design masterpiece. His Picasso was this world. His, craning, his, his, his shining star was us, uh, his creation. And we had decided to disobey and to sin. We had rebelled against God and what he'd asked us to do. God said, would you please do this? We said, no, we want to do it our way. And that's what sin is. Anytime we go contrary to what God asks us to do, which is best for our life. And Adam and Eve did that. Because of that, this whole snowball of sin has unraveled, and now it's growing and growing, and it's my sin and your sin and everybody else's sin that has caused the chaos and sickness and disease and hurt and pain and troubles in this world. And God condemned man that day. God condemned creation that day. And God condemned Satan that day. Remember, he said to man, you're going to work for the rest of your days, and it's going to be tiresome. Uh, Ladies, he said, you're going to have children, and it's going to be painful. He said to Satan, here's what he said to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, that means Eve, and between your offspring and hers. That offspring is everybody beyond Eve. That's all of us and the people that have come before us and the people who will come after us. And he will crush your head. So God says in a prophecy to Satan, your head's going to get crushed. And if you crush a snake's head, what does that mean for the snake? Death, right? Death. And you will strike his heel. So there's two things going on here. Satan is going to be able to bring a painful wound to humanity. That's sin. You have felt the pain. You have felt the pain. You have felt the pain of the strike of Satan, the hurts, the troubles, the inadequacies, the guilt, the dark thoughts that some of us have. But it says, Satan, your head's going to be crushed. You're going to die. Now that death began, that death blow started at Calvary, on the cross of Christ, that death blow began. But it will not come to full culmination until Satan is ultimately defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. And if you want to know more about that, that's Revelation 20, starting in verse 10 and following. And there'll be a complete defeat, an, an annihilation of Satan. And he is not even the Lord of, of hell. He's a nothing. God is still in charge above all things. And the Old Testament prophets talk about this unfolding and the planning of Jesus. You know, there are 360 prophecies that point towards Jesus coming. For every one of them to be fulfilled is what mathematicians would say is impossible. They don't even say it's probable. They say it's impossible. For five prophecies 
of Christ to be fulfilled. They say it's implausible that that could happen because the numbers of that are too great that it almost turns into like a pie. 3.14 dash dot 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 and it never ends. Jesus, when he came to earth as God in the flesh, met 360 plus prophecies and every single of them rang true when he was born. Number one, he was, he was, he was to be from the lineage of David and he is. Number two, he was to be born in the town of Bethlehem, and he was. He was to be born of a virgin, and he was. I mean, look at the book of Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus. Written 700 years. God spoke to the preacher, the prophet uh, 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 Isaiah, and here's what he said. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Virgins aren't supposed to give birth. But yet Isaiah says, this is what's going to happen, and the Bible in Luke 2 says, this is what happened. There was a culmination of what God had already pre-planned. How about the book of Micah, chapter 5? He specifically points out the little obscure village. Now, Bethlehem is not a big place. It's not what it is today. There were not even a thousand people that probably lived in the town of Bethlehem at the time. And Micah says 700 years before Jesus was born. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which he points that out because there were two Bethlehems at the time. And he, what he's saying is God narrowed it down and he had planned for it. He'd be born of a virgin. He'd be in the lineage of, lineage of David. He'd be, he would be born in Bethlehem. Through you, though you're small, the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel. And God had packaged all this together because he planned Jesus' arrival. He had it all in order. Now go to Luke chapter two and look at verse four with me. It says, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth. We talked last week. That's about 100 miles away from Bethlehem. No cars to get you there. You're, you're doing about a seven-day journey by walking. And it's in the area of Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem. He had to go to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the lineage of David. Now, some of you know the backstory. You know the Christmas story. Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem. Why? Not because they wanted to take a vacation there. They didn't have a timeshare in Bethlehem. He didn't want to go visit family. They went there because they were forced to go back home because the government of Rome had announced a census. Now that census wasn't a, a circumstantial event. God had planned all of this. There was a planning of God's son, Jesus, to be born here, just like parents would plan for their children. Now think about the star for a second. The star you can read about in the book of Matthew, chapter 2. God, when he created the cosmos, think about this. When he created the cosmos, he knew that he'd have to have a star that would shine so brightly that just at the right time, right when Christ was born, for about 16 months, that star would shine at its brightest. And that that star was spoken into existence on the day of creation, put on a path so that the trajectory of that star would line up right over Bethlehem when it needed to line up because everything was pre-planned for Christ's coming by God. He had this pre-planned. Jesus is not plan B, guys. He was plan A all along. He knew that you and me, if not Adam and Eve, would make a mess of things. He knew he would need to jump into our skin and save us. He was planned from the very beginning. I love how the Magi come and they approach King Herod. He says, they say to King Herod, where is the one who was born King of the Jews? Now notice how they, they reference his star. We saw his star in the east have come to worship it. Interesting, isn't it? Not we've come because we saw the star. We saw his star. 
You know, the Magi were these kings. They were scholars of astronomy, scholars of Scripture, and they were able to put those two things together. Uh, They were able to put together prophecies that were written hundreds of years before Jesus came. Prophecies like Isaiah 60 that happened to say, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of your Lord rises upon you. See, the darkness covers the earth, and the thick darkness is over the peoples. The people were entrapped by sin. It's no different than our day today. People were, were, were selfish. People were consumed about their lifestyle. They, they didn't care about what God really wanted to do in their life. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. And they were covered in darkness. And the earth was covered in darkness because of the sins of the people. All figuratively, the darkness of the earth. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your dawn. And those scholars of astronomy, those scholars of Scripture, took those passages along with some others, and they said, this all aligns with the Messiah who's going to be born in Bethlehem of a virgin. We need to go check this stuff out. And think about God welcoming his firstborn into the world. He had everything prearranged for his coming. Okay, enough, enough about that for a second. Enough about that. Look at how the gospel writers put it in Galatians chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 4. They put it like this. But when the time had fully come, God had sent his son, who's born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. So when the time had fully come, when everything had been fulfilled, God sent Jesus prearranged, prepackaged. He did that for us. That's the gift. That's the gift of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something about gifts. This Christmas, you're going to have some under the tree. You're going to reach into a stocking and there's going to be something in there. I think everybody in this room is going to get at least one gift. And it's going to be wrapped and probably have your name on it. Now, wouldn't you think we'd be awfully foolish if we were just to leave that gift under the tree and say, put away the tree after Christmas, put away the stockings, put away all the lights, And that gift, well, I want nothing to do with it. You can put it away too. And the loved one that handed you the gift might say, but don't you want to open it? I purchased it for you. It's for you. And and you say, no, 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 no. I I want nothing to do with it. I might revisit it next year, but for now, I want nothing to do with it. Now, wouldn't you think someone who had that mentality was maybe mean or perhaps even ignorant about what was being given to them? You know, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus Christ the indescribable gift. He's a gift that's been given to us. And Paul says he is undescribable, the gift that Christ wants to give us. Meaning, you never really can explain away the benefits he brings to your life. And as Paul says he's indescribable and he's this gift to us, don't you think it would be pretty insane to leave the gift that God has given to us and not accept it? You see, Jesus Christ came and his birth was prearranged so that you can accept that gift. His birth came at just the right time. Now, here's my theory about some things. Uh, Micah and the book of Joel, these are two Old Testament books, are the two last books where God spoke to people. He used Micah and Joel as the last prophets to speak through. After that, there's 400 years of silence. We call it the time between the Testaments. God says nothing. 
God really does nothing miraculous. People kind of walk away from God. They forget about God because when God is silent or there are people that stop preaching the good news of Jesus, we forget about God quickly. And the people became very selfish. There was a time of darkness, of sin. Even the religious leaders, the religious leaders of the time didn't stay to the faith. They were very public about their faith, but privately, they really didn't have a faith anymore. And the people of the time, they just had their faith as a set of goals that they had to make, rituals, a religion, rather than relating with God in a relationship. That might explain some of you in this room. You look at your faith as a set of goals. You look at it as a sense of religion and ritual, and you've got to have all the A's and B's and T's crossed and I's dotted, and otherwise God wants nothing to do with you. And you forgot all about the grace that God has sent into this world, God with us, about God who has put on this, this human suit to be like us. And you have forgotten that God most desperately wants you in a relationship with Him, not this re- ritual stuff or religious stuff. And you have to rely on His grace because every day, every single day, we're going to make a mistake and make a mess of this world. We're going to create trouble for ourselves because of our our disobedience to God. But Christ came at just the right time. And while there was silence, people were coming up with all these conclusions about God and about the Messiah that they were waiting on. So they started to couple God and politics together. Anybody in this room ever done that? Like, you know, you you set your political sales based on your faith or you set your faith based on your political sales? And you've let politics and faith intertwine and, and now you really can't tell the difference. And That's what the Jews had done. They were expecting a Messiah to come to them that was powerful, that was strong, that was a king. They thought that Jesus was going to live in a palace. They thought he was going to overthrow the Roman government, get them out of their backs, and that they were going to be able to live peacefully in like a special kingdom, like almost like Camelot, and Jesus was going to be King Arthur. And everything was going to be better. Boy, were they shocked when God showed up as a baby. And in the cries of that night, you might remember what the angel's song was in Luke 2, verse 14, the second half of that. The angels declare peace to men on whom God's favor rests. Now, everybody at that time wanted power. They wanted to take over the nations. They wanted a political figure. And Jesus arrives and said, I haven't come to be a politician. I haven't come to enforce my power. I've come to bring you peace because you don't need a politician to make your life better. You don't need more power to make your life better. You need peace and a savior so that your life can be better. You know, we can have the most chaos in our life, but when you have Christ, you can have the greatest of peace even as you go through the storm. Some of you need to discover that today and receive this gift that God has given to us. You see, Christ has come at just the right time. Not just the right time for the people of his day, but also for you guys today too. He's come so that you can call on him as your Lord and Savior today. So that you can have peace in your chaos. You know, Luke chapter 2, verse 28 has this interesting story wrapped in it. Towards the end of the chapter. Jesus is born, and he is presented at the temple. And while he's being presented at the temple, there are two characters that are there. And they've been told by the Holy Spirit that a man 
and a woman, been told by the Holy Spirit that they won't die until they actually get to see the Messiah presented to them for their own eyes. And there's a story about a man named Simeon. Simeon is old as the hills. I mean, his eyes are probably bulging out. He's got spittle in his beard. Every, every young mother that comes to the temple that has a, a, a blue blanket over their baby, she says, it's a boy, it's a boy. And he has to see if it's the Messiah or not. And as he's growing older in years, here comes Mary. And the bank, blanket's blue. And he has to check the blanket. Is that a boy? It's a boy. What's his name? I can just see Mary. His name's Jesus, and he recognizes immediately. This is the Messiah. And then he has this song that is to be sang for the centuries. Luke chapter 2, verse 28. Here's the song of this old crusty guy that finally sees what he's been waiting on for maybe centuries. Simon took him in his arms, took Jesus in his arms. Jesus is eight days old. And he praised God saying, Sovereign Lord. You know what sovereign means? God has a plan. Always has a plan. And God's plan always works out. And your toiling can't mess it up. And my toiling can't muck it up. God's got a plan. Sovereign. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you've done exactly what you said you were going to do. Can you now dismiss your servant in peace? Like, I'm really old here, God, and I'm really tired, and I've got some bad arthritis. Just, just end it for me because nothing's going to get better than this. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Interesting what he calls Jesus, your salvation. Which you have prepared in the sight of all the people light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for the people of Israel. And Luke adds this story of Simeon as if to say, just at the right time, Christ was born. And what does Simeon say? My eyes have seen... My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared. God, I know that you've made all these things happen for this moment so that salvation can be brought into this world and so that anybody who calls on your name will be saved. God had planned Jesus' birth. Jesus came at just the right time, but that rolls into this. Christ died at the right time, at the perfect prescribed time. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it, Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. I can't think of two better words than what Paul had already come up with as what would best describe us and our condition. Powerless, ungodly. Powerless. Now, I know we think we have some control, but what control do we really have? Think about the chaos that's going on overseas. Think about the worries of this homeland. Think about the scare tactics that are being presented before us. Think about the conversations that are, having, that are being had politically. Gun control, abortion, immigration. Think about the political climate that we're involved in. Think about the things that are going on at your workplace, within your family, Think about the things that maybe you're trying to have charge of, but you know you really don't. You've raised a child in the faith, but they've gone wayward on you. Or you have a grandchild that you know can live up to a greater standard because they've shown you, but they're just not. And you can't even seem to change their opinion around. We're powerless. Think about your own life. Your own self for a minute. 
you know, in about 10 days or so, we're going to make all these resolutions. Need to lose weight. Need to exercise more. Want to tell my wife I love her more. All these resolutions that we'll try to keep. But you know what the truth is? The majority of us won't keep them past 30 days. We're not even powerful enough to keep to our own promises. And Paul says, when we were powerless. And I said, Paul, you know me too well. And when you're ungodly. It doesn't mean that you don't care for God. It just means that you don't see the need for God. You might recognize Him as a creator. Recognize Jesus as uh, God's Son. But you just haven't done anything with Him. The ungodly. It makes me wonder why God puts up with the powerless and the ungodly. I mean, if I've ruined his masterpiece, his beautiful Picasso painting here, and I've put my own creative elements into it, but were really destructive elements through my sinfulness, why does he put up with me? I think the Apostle Paul answers that question two verses later in chapter 5 of Romans, verse 8. But God demonstrated his, his own love for us in this. Will you read this next part with me out loud? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You may not recognize this in your life just yet, so this might just be knowledge without it connecting to your heart. God loves you. He doesn't love you like your father loves you or like your mother loves you. He doesn't love you maybe like someone has loved you where they love you just for what you bring to the table. They don't love, he doesn't love you just because you're blood and they feel like they have to love you sometimes. He loves you because he created and designed you. He loves you because you are imago Dei. You are in the image of God. His attributes are there. Oh, sometimes they're so clouded in the darkness that we have, the sin that's in our life, but, that, but God's in there somewhere. He's in there. And friends, at just the right time, he died for you because he loves you. And some of you think, well, I've got to have my family affairs all together first because my marriage is not good and my relationship with my kids isn't good. And I'll, then I'll get, when I get that in order, then I can come to Christ. Some of you might be thinking, you know, my, my mind thinks the most terrible thoughts. And I have this impulse to check out and view the most terrible of things. And when I finally get that under control, then I'll come to Christ and I'll start this new walk. Some of you are thinking, you know what? I've made a mess of things. I've got this past, and this past has really haunted me. It's like baggage, and I can't get it off of my chest, and I really can't express it to anybody because if they knew about this, I don't think they'd want anything to do with me. Powerless. Powerless. Ungodly. And at just the right time, Christ steps in to save us to rescue us in our trouble, in our mess. You know, this summer we had done some trips to the city pool. We kind of welcomed in the community and had the congregation come. And so the pool was just a madhouse, like 400 kids and adults in the poolside at our community pool. So all the lifeguards were out. All the parents surrounded the poolside and kind of watched their kids. And there was a little boy who jumped in and, and I think he had some water wings on or something, but for whatever it was, he was thrashing around and uh, got the attention of some of the adults because it looked like he was still going under even with the flotation device. 
Some parents stood up and we all hesitated. We looked at him and we thought, well, surely he'll make it to the side or, or, or we'll bob back up with the, but he just kept thrashing around. And the, and the lifeguard kind of got on her perch a little bit and looked at him. And, and then you could see that she was about ready to make the move. And, and then she jumps in. But right when she jumped in, the boy had already managed to get to the side and kind of pull himself up. No one really jumped in to his trouble to help him. Here's what Christ did. He saw you sinking, treading water, however you want to look at it, and he jumped in to your pool, and some of us have a cesspool. He dove right in to rescue us, to redeem us, to save us, to give you confidence in your future long after this body is gone and our soul continues on. So let me give you three truths about what we're talking about here today. Three truths of the birth of Christ. One, it was planned from the very beginning. God had this plan from the very beginning. He knew you and I would make a mess of things. He knew you and I would do some stupid stuff, some disobedient things. We tried to manage life our own way rather than God's way. And, and, and he knew that sooner or later, we would reach out and say, God, I need you. I'm drowning here. Friends, his gift of Christ awaits. Second, Jesus was born at just the right time. I mean, if you think about Jesus, we only know him after, after he's been born. We only know him as Savior. But just imagine if you had to wait there and anticipate salvation. I would assume that many of us wouldn't care about God anymore. We would just maybe be religious people, but we'd be a lot like the Pharisees were 2,000 years ago, publicly demonstrating our faith, but privately having no relationship with God. And we'd be dead in our sins. But isn't it great when the Scriptures reveal this truth to us? Luke 2, verse 11. In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. That's good stuff. We don't have to wonder what our life would be like without Jesus. Christ has come, and we can receive Jesus right now. He was born at just the right time. Third thing is, he's, he was born to die. You know, salvation comes from Christ, and it comes from His death and resurrection. You can't save yourself. You're, you're powerless to save yourself. You're ungodly to save yourself from the wickedness and the darkness in our lives. And Christ has come to save us. Tim Keller, who is a popular preacher and, and author, he said this, here's the gospel, he says, you're more sinful than you ever dared to believe and you are more loved than you ever dared hoped for. We're more sinful than we thought and we're more loved than we could ever imagine. So what do you do with this? i tell you what you can do with this. You can come and make Christ your Savior and your Lord and find forgiveness and new life in Him. And I know what some of us think. We think, but you know what? I've got some really dark things in my life. And if God were to know about those things, He'd want nothing to do with me. You know, Jesus says that He knows the number of hairs on our head, which is His way of saying, I know you more intimately than you know yourself. I know you better than yourself. So there's not going to be some moment when you come to Jesus and then God all of a sudden recognizes, oh, you know what? That guy's done something so bad that I can't redeem that. No, he already knows you. He knows the dark thoughts. He knows the past actions. He knows how we have made a mess of things. 
And he's jumped into this world. He's put it on our skin and said, I'm here to save you and redeem you. My blood will cover every sin. You can be unchained from your past. You can walk now in a new life. And that starts with believing in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. And it continues on to say, I'm going to put myself to death. And friends, that's what this baptistry is, uh, is a symbol of. Dying to ourselves in a watery grave, rising again with Jesus Christ and being made new in Him.